The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, Matt, we're going to electric vehicles, Matt. It's happening. I mean, you, you were so kind to let fire me up with a Bloomberg F, I mean, with the Ford F-150. Uh, that was awesome. But I'm not going there unless there's like, the batteries are better in the charging stations everywhere we got gas stations. I, I, I'm not going to be a first I mean, adopter. There are a number of reasons. I'm not going to be a first adopter there. tentative about it. Yes, call it that. But, uh, sorry, my mic was off. Thank you, Ken. Yeah. There are a number of reasons to be tentative about it, but how fun was it to yes, drive the, the F-150 Lightning? Lightning? Yeah, it's, it's a beast. I have to admit, that was yeah. pretty cool. Jeff Chamberlain joins us. Uh, he's the CEO of Volta Energy Technologies. He joins us live here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Appreciate that. See, when it's climate week, you get people coming into New York. When it's UN week, people come into New York, you get them in studio. Jeff, tell us about your company, Volta Energy Technologies. What do you guys do here in this EV space? Uh, we invest in battery and associated te technologies, including the kind of infrastructure you were talking about, yep. charging stations, et cetera. The, the, there's a whole bunch of new technology requirements there that will be and are, be, uh, are being adopted. And so our whole goal is to invest uh, in companies at that inflection point when they come out of science and they're all ready for scale. Um, and we're industrialists and we're investors by training and by experience. And ultimately, I ran all the battery work at Argonne National Laboratory for 10 years got to see supply chains developing around the entire world and what the customer's needs were so that we believe we can place capital more effectively than, than most. So unlike Paul, I am there, I'm ready. <laughs> um, and I've got my eye on a few EVs that I think are just amazing in terms of um, the powertrain. Uh, and my one concern is that I buy something and it becomes obsolete by the time it gets delivered. Mm. Do you see the same kind of, what's it called, Moore's Law, um, you know, in batteries that um, that we famously saw in chips, do they just double in capacity every year or have in price? Yeah, thanks for the question, Matt. And, and by the way, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, the I come from the chip industry, and so we have tried to design or, or declare what a Moore's law looks like. But no, in Moore's law, it's double the dens density of transistors on a on a wafer every twelve to eighteen months. What's happened in the battery industry um, is they were first commercialized, lithium-ion batteries were first commercialized in 1992 for camcorders. So 30 years have progressed. The average is something like in the low single digits, maybe low double digits percentage improvements year over year, as opposed to a doubling. So there is a kind of Moore's law for battery, but it's not as extreme as what you're describing. But I do wanna say one thing. In 2004, when Tesla started, the battery cost the unit of merit is dollars per kilowatt hour. They were at about four to six thousand dollars per kilowatt hour. Parity with gas-powered vehicles, you need to be about a hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars a kilowatt hour. So they had the the hubris, the hubris to believe yep. economies yep. of scale and better engineering could get you there. And guess what? It did. 
the costs are down over 95% since they were very close to parity with, with gas. So what are we looking at vehicles. now per kilowatt hour? It's depending on the supplier. It ranges between 80 and $180 a kilowatt hour. So we're essentially there. Okay, because the ones I like, well, GM has these massive 210 kilowatt hour battery packs. I don't know how efficient they are, but I just like, it's like a big block V8, you know, in the <laughs> truck. They get 450 miles of range. The new Escalade uh, EQ, I think it's called, or Escalade IQ, I can't remember. Anyway, the new EV Escalade does zero to 60 in five seconds, and it weighs damn near 10,000 pounds. Jeez. It's just unbelievable the amount of thrust you get from these electric motors. Um, what do you think about the... Um, the obsolescence of the battery though over a few years like you can't just swap out a battery from these the way you could could with a with an ICE engine um, you can swap them out I mean you could if you wanted to keep your truck and put a more modern battery in it there are ways to do that but my guess is it'll be less costly for you as a consumer to buy a new vehicle um, I don't think obsolescence is going to move that quickly in the battery tech. The, the key that they're aiming for is cost and range today. But there's another key that, that Paul mentioned, and that's the infrastructure surrounding it. Where can I go to charge my vehicle quickly? What is potentially more important in, than range is ubiquitous fast charging. Can I fill my hmm. vehicle with energy to go three, four, five hundred miles in five to 20 minutes? That technology is on the rise. It's being adopted right now. What do we know at this stage of development of the EVs and batteries about the supply chain, the raw materials needed. I've, I've heard from some people that that's going to be a gating issue. What, what do you know about that from your the Yeah, there's, there's a lot of folks out there that talk about lithium being um, a, a resource. Lithium is the key. Let's start there. Okay. In fact, I, I was hoping to talk today about a comparison with oil. The last time the human race has experienced an energy transition like the one that has started was a shift from whale oil to rock oil. And this transition is on the scale of that transition. By it, rock oil, I mean petroleum. I mean, he got a PhD the, the, in to, What, the shift from, from oil? From, from whale oil, which No, used, no, but now, the, the, yes, what's comparable the, now to the shift from oil? The shift from oil to renewable power and electric transportation is on par in terms of the size of the shift and the overall impacts on a wide variety of industries, as oil was. Oil was started for lanterns. Right. Look at where it ended up. So I'm wondering, actually, about that. In terms of you know, how much lithium there is in the ground, how uh, easy it's going to be, I guess it's going to get easier and easier to get it out of the ground. You know, is it um, as reliable as oil has been for the last century? Short answer is yes. I think there's a lot of, of um, hand wringers that are telling us there's not enough lithium in there. There's crust, there definitely is. Your point's a good one, though. Some is economic today in terms of extracting and refining it, some is not. One of the things we invest in, and we're not the only ones, is new technology to make the extraction of lithium more economic. And so that, getting back to the supply chain issue, you know, there's a, the, uh, the headline is China controls a lot of the materials. But in the case of lithium, the vast majority of lithium that's ready to use in batteries comes out of China, but it's processed there. It's not mined there. And this is something I was hoping to talk about, getting back to the supply chain. Where question. is it mined? Uh, the, the, the primary resource is the so-called cone in South America. Chile has a massive resource, so does Bolivia and Argentina. That's where the biggest resources are. There's some in Australia, there's some in China, there's a lot in the US. There, and, and this is really what I'm saying, we're at the early stages of this, it's like finding a new, you know, it started with spindle top, oil, oil did in Texas, then we found oil, humans found oil in Saudi Arabia. This same thing is gonna be happening with lithium. So are you, 
you know, at Volta, are you investing in, or are you at, at, in, on, involved in other companies investing in the processing of these materials here? Because yeah. we don't want it to all be processed we, we absolutely, in China. We yeah. absolutely are, including new, new technologies to process them more efficiently and less costly. So this, and that is something I want to say, the supply chain movement is evidence of the maturity state of this industry. And what I mean by that is a guy from the chip industry We'd been preaching to anyone that would listen, investors and the government up in Capitol Hill for 15 years, the supply chains are going to move out of China, and here's why. In the chip industry, it makes sense to have centralized manufacturing. The, the mass of microchips versus their value, their value is massive compared to their mass. So you can get economies of scale, centralized manufacturing in Taiwan, ship them around the world. You can't do that with the battery technology, and you don't have to look any further than the automotive industry itself to believe me. The, the, by units, the largest manufacturer of cars in the U.S. is Toyota. They don't make their cars in Japan for the American customers. It's the same thing with battery tech. Those supply chains are moving right now. And by the way, in terms of the change in technology, um, what you're saying reminds me of something that Gary Schilling, uh, who's a f famous you know, 86-year-old economist, he tells me when he was a kid, uh, people were wringing their hands and worried that there wasn't enough copper in the Earth's crust for the telecoms industry. <laughs> and obviously, we've moved on from that point. Yes, in the fiber. Yeah. And, and there's another thing. That there, were, there were New York Times articles in the 1930s when the horseless carriage was really taken mm -hmm. off that there's not enough lead in the Earth's crust. And this is an important point as well regarding movement of supply chains. Lead is recycled. Lead acid batteries out of vehicles, it's like 98.7% of those are recycled. The same thing is going to happen here. So we may not have access to cobalt in those batteries that comes out of the Congo, but we will because we're going to move to so-called urban mining, waste materials to get copper, cobalt, lithium, et cetera. Fascinating. So stuff. cool. It yeah. is. I mean, I mean, I guess you get a bachelor's in chemistry from Wake Forest. What are you going to do with that? So you triple down, you get a PhD in physical chemistry from Georgia Tech. I mean, those are some serious engineering geeks down there in Georgia Tech. So <laughs> He means then, that in a good way. Yeah, in a good, in a good way. Um, some uh, really big ones. So anyway, then you go into the electric car business. Why not? Jeff Chamberlain, CEO of Volta Energy Technologies. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, uh, coming into the uh, Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. So again, it is uh, climate week in New York, and so we get a lot of smart people coming through here talking to us about uh, what's happening out there in the evolution of the energy space. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Matt, instead of buying the latest car with a scat pack or whatever it is, you could put your money into your treasury and get 5.06% today. How about that? I mean... It's That's probably a, a smart idea, which is why I won't be doing it. But a lot of others are, <laughs> not just in the twos, right? The fives yep. hit the highest level since 2007. The 10s hit the highest level since 2007. And a reminder, you know, that was 16 years ago. Yep. So it, these rates are incredible. And keep in mind, right? Uh, Prices move in the opposite direction. That's so when right we see here. these high prices, it means uh, rates, it means that the prices are low. Why? Is everybody selling off treasuries right now? Let's ask Joanna Gallegos. She's the co-founder of Bond Blocks, and she joins us right now in the Interactive Broker Studio. So, Joanna, I know you well from our ETF show, where you're a frequent guest, and um, I also know from that show that everyone's been getting long in treasuries, and they've been losing money on that big bet. Why? Yeah, over the last three months, that 
that trade is down 10%. If you're going long treasuries, 20 plus. Um, I think that, and this is a trend, that the treasury flow into the long end has been probably the biggest percentage of flow into treasuries uh, year on year, so the 12 months trailing. Um, it's the biggest, it's at 30% of flows into treasuries for 2023. I think people are just taking a really, really big view on trying to call the bottom, and they're sticking with it, which is pretty fascinating that they're doing that. I think the good sign is that- but Today it makes yeah. sense, right? It, it because can, we haven't seen yields this high in, as it, we just said, 16 years. Yes, yeah. I think the think the the encouraging thing is that we've seen less of in 2023 or recently is all of more flow into the short short end. So three months, six months, and more flow balanced across one like one plus years into three, five, ten, just as you described. I think that's encouraging. People are trying to just have, feather in more duration into their into their portfolio. Now, just tell us quickly about your products at Bond Blocks, yep. because there are some very popular ETFs that people use to make these trades. Yeah, so with, for that very reason, we observe that you can't actually trade exact duration in the current in, in the current ETF um, offering. So we launched eight duration-specific treasury funds. So if you want one-year duration, two-year duration, three-year duration, you can use our products more precisely for exactly the trades I think people are trying to put on. If you broadly um, put on duration in your portfolio, you may have you may you may over allocate to that duration, and so we want people in these markets to be able to be very very prescriptive and selective where they go into into high yield. Given and rates where they are, are you them. seeing flows? I mean, you, it seems like you're perfectly positioned for where the market is today at bond blocks. I mean, are you seeing? flows come in and if so kind of where where are they going we had a really cool trade this week um in our double b high yield fund we have a credit rating series and i think that's acknowledging the strength that you're seeing corporate balance sheets and the resiliency that has um been in the economy this year so i think i think people are taking on um very measured risk uh, and to see a trade like that is is really compelling um interesting <laughs> so for bond blocks i mean again um what are some of the products that are kind of most popular these days in your ETF portfolio? Yeah, we're starting to see increased interest across duration, as I mentioned, like moving out uh, a little bit into the duration trade. And as well, we're seeing um, interest in some of the corporate products that we have out. We have a really robust um, offering in high yield. We have over 10 products in high yield. Oh, okay. So you can trade sectors with bond blocks. At bond blocks, you can trade um, credit ratings, as I mentioned. And um, I think Matt would be happy to hear that in the summer, we saw a lot of interest in our triple C product. Huh? Um, it's one of my favorites. So yeah. <laughs> you just picked my favorite bond, bond yeah. blocks ETF. Yeah. But they're tight, right? Um, yeah, so obviously they do what they say they're going to do. They track their indexes. They give you that exact exposure. Um, also, what I think is interesting is people are starting to realize that the fundamentals in high yield are really strong. And if you think about it relative to the other risks that are in your portfolios, those high coupon rates are providing you a ton of cushion for any volatility that might come um, going forward in fixed income. Plus, relative to equities, which over the last 10 or 15 years, portfolios have been heavily, heavily allocated to to, to eke out more return, the, these are great port of calls to look for exposure to get um, to get you to those to those levels of return, seven, ten percent a year, whatever you're looking for, with less risk. Um, in fact, the broad high yield category has over less than half the risk of the S and P 500. Yet you're getting all this yield and all this cushion and strength in the balance sheets. That's so interesting. It's, it's a so high yield in general, which out. is what uh, triple B's and lower. 
So no, triple B is investment grade. So it's double B, B, and triple C. Double B and lower. Yeah. Uh, that general category has less risk than buying the S&P. 500, yeah, from a volatility perspective over the last 10 years. Yeah. And you just don't think, like you really have to reintroduce yourself to some of these categories in fixed income and remind yourself of the characteristics of them. You know, also, this isn't the same credit cycle we've seen in, in the past. Like, like the defaults haven't shown up um, in past any kind of historical highs that they should be. They should be. Um, the distressed names in the overall category is pretty low. It's only at about seven and a half percent. So it's it just it's an interesting thing if you get familiar with the corporate issuers and the corporate categories, investment grade too. There's a lot of um, relative risk and reward here that you haven't been able to deploy in your portfolio for a long time. And Do you see demand for up in quality over high yield now? Up in quality over high yield, like getting yeah. getting some of these. Yeah, so that's the thing. You can be really selective within these categories with, you know, at Bomblox we have, you're able to choose the categories very, very precisely. Um, and so, yeah, you can go seek out quality high yield and you can go seek out quality corporate exposure. And um, it sounds like those two things aren't supposed to go together, but there's just a lot of misconceptions about the category and what's going on with them right now. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, ETF Go on the Bloomberg Terminal, XCCC, uh, the uh, CC, uh, triple C rated US dollar high yield corporate bond up 12% trailing 12 month basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, the, that's that yield that is just really hard to, to look away from, um, especially with, as I mentioned, the different level of volatility that that um, gives you in your portfolio. And, you know, it's 2023. We're almost at the end of 2023. At Bomb Blocks, we don't see a recession or any downturn happening through the end of this year or even into the beginning of next year. And you're going on your second, almost third year of this market environment with yields at, the, at these levels, which are double where they were before the, the mm -hmm. Fed started um, hiking rates. And you, you really, if we think things are higher for longer, which at Bomb Blocks we do, yep. um, and we don't see these hard landings, you really need to think about what's going on with your portfolio for the next two to three years. All right, Joanna, uh, always great stuff to chat with you. Joanna Gallegos, co-founder of Bond Blocks. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Danielle DiMartino Booth made it here to the studio. She's the CEO and Chief Strategist at QI Research. You came in from LaGuardia. Not a quick trip no. today. You need sir. a police no. escort. Yeah, you need you a police do. escort. Like in a, in a helicopter, preferably. Yes. <laughs> well, we know a guy that could help us out next yeah, time. Yeah, this is we'll not the right time to like break a leg really big. This is not the right time to need an ambulance in Manhattan. No, forget about it, particularly all. on the east side. All right, Danielle, um, you were just talking about the housing market. Give us some of those stats you were talking about because Matt and I both now are real estate moguls or homeowners. Oh, yes. Uh, we own property. You, we own property, <laughs> exactly. What are you seeing in the, in, in the real estate market? Does that mean you top the market? Um, no, what we're so, seeing is, is, is kind of this 
this supply, oversupply bloodbath that we've been worried about for a few years on the apartment side finally coming to fruition. So before the pandemic, you might have had 82, 83,000 units absorbed a month. This, the last month we had like 46, I want to say 1,000, don't quote me, but about, about half of mm -hmm. what was pre-pandemic normal from the 109,000 units that came online out of the pipeline. So you're not even getting 50% of what's being produced. You had, you've had 1.2 million units come on in the last three years, and there's another 1 million units in the pipeline. So we saw multifamily permits yesterday really get hit hard, but you've still got to work through a pipeline of another million units. Well, people aren't going to take out a mortgage at seven and a half percent to, well, someday I, they will, right? I hey. mean, it looks bad compared to a couple of years ago, but not so bad compared to 20 years ago. Refinancings were up like 13% in this morning's Mortgage Bankers Association data. Somebody's taking cash out of their homes at these mortgage rates. Wow. So does this, is this what the Fed wanted or does this make um, the transition uh, transmission mechanism um, slower? It makes it a lot slower. Yeah, and and I think that's exactly what we've seen. And because some people say, you know, uh, when we talk to Danny Blanchflower, he says it takes eighteen to twenty four months for these rate hikes to work their way through the economy. But other people, like Jan Hatzius, say actually the lags are. Um, much quicker than they had been in the past, which is why he thinks that they've worked their way through well, the economy. Well, they, they could have been quicker, yeah. could have been, but the fiscal impulse kicked right back up. So that's not normally what you see when you're when your economy is slowing, when you're getting to the end of the cycle, you don't normally see the government re-up, completely re-up, as if we're at war. Fiscal spending, along with the employee retention credit, which is now on hold, thank you God. <laughs> By the way, no one talks but, about the fiscal side. But, but if we were Neither pumping, when it I comes mean, to a driver of inflation, nor when it comes to the economy. Everyone talks yeah, about in the month of July, policy. the employee retention credit pumped out $29.8 billion in one month in cash. In, directly deposited into people's check, just like the stimulus checks were, those one, two, three stimulus checks. It's the same exact thing that bypasses monetary policy and the Fed's ability to try and slow the economy. Now, the plug's been pulled on that. So, you know, and student loans, people are preemptively getting out there and paying their student loans. Who would have predicted this, that we would have seen this spike in fiscal, in, in, in government revenues in the month of August? People are like, hey, Interest is going to start back up. This is just a fact of life. My budget's going to take a hit. I might as well just start paying right now in August. And they did. Hmm. All right. Putting all the millions of pieces of data that you look at and your team at QI Research look at, what's your recession call? I, I think that the reason we're seeing some, for lack of a better way, way to describe it, preemptive Chapter 11 filings some stores just up, I mean, we're seeing massive amounts of stores closing, 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 closing. I think we're seeing it because they know that the holidays are not going to save them. So I think we're, I think, I think we're finally getting to the hard part of the landing as opposed to where we've been because so that soft the landing, fiscal impulse. You're not buying into that soft landing rhetoric? It, no, certainly no. not with the UAW on strike. Okay. A government shutdown and the government shutdown. The I mean, UAW on yeah. strike, student loan payments getting ready to resume. Yep. I've got a whole list. I can't. Do? I don't have it up right Gas now. Gas prices try and, as yeah. high as they are. People the are substituting out okay. things. Credit card debt rising. Credit card delinquencies rising. rising. Auto load delinquencies rising. And where is it? It's in that sweet spot. The 30 to 39 year old who has the biggest student loan payment 
That's where you're seeing credit card delinquencies the highest, according to New York Fed data. Same thing with auto, auto loan delinquencies, the highest. Auto Finance Weekly, it's kind of a trade um, trade weekly. Mm-hmm. They said that repossessions this year are tracking at $2 million for the year. And, and, and there, it, repossessions right now are just a factor of how many cars per day can the repo men get. <laughs> and it's, there, there's literally, it's, so it's capacity constrained. I have a Danielle DiMartino Booth fan who always writes in when you're on. Um, he has sent me like eight questions so far, but just I'll eight. just, just, I'll just pose uh, <laughs> one, which I think is really interesting. Um, do you fear the ho-hum data is lulling investors into lazy risk adding, which makes sense to me? I do, especially because you have to understand that going into the great financial crisis, we didn't have like a trillion plus dollar fixed income exchange traded fund universe, but now we do. So the structure of the financial system has changed and what we see reflected in kind of high yield spreads, and that's where you're like, danger, danger. We're not seeing it reflected in spreads because of the ETF structure. So you're just seeing spreads reflect inflows and redemptions from these gigantic fixed income ETFs and the super liquid names that trade when there's redemptions and when there's inflows. So you don't see the 90% of the garbage that's trading by appointment only reflected in spreads. So that gives investors, I think, another this, this air of confidence that they should not have. All right. That's fascinating. Does the Fed share your sense of caution, do you think, such that they will just settle down and stop? I would have to say no, given how sanguine John Williams is and that he runs the New York Fed Mm -hmm. where the markets desk is housed. And that's where they get their markets intelligence throughout the Federal Reserve System. So I would have to say absolutely not. So when's when's the cliff risk? Here is it when unemployment jumps? Is it when we don't yep. get a great holiday shopping season? Is it? Um, I think some- it's. I think it's both of those things. Remember, yellow trucking had severance. Okay, so we didn't see that thirty thousand hit. That's to the trucking bankruptcy. Initial job where a ton claims. of people lost jobs. But thirty thousand people exactly. lost their jobs, but we didn't see that hit because of severance. So we've only got three states left that don't have rising continuing jobless claims: Oklahoma, Kansas, and Alaska. That's it. We had zero states with rising continuing jobless claims last September. Now we have forty-seven out wow. of the fifty-one. Forty-seven. So you think the Fed should? Sit, st- st- not stop raising rates, and or should they actually cut rates? Where are you? Where I do don't you- think we're necessarily at the juncture of cutting rates, but even when we get there in 2024, keep shrinking the balance sheet. And is the Fed doing that? Oh yeah. Okay. It okay. slowed we're down a little to bit. Seven and a half trillion now from it, eight and a half it trillion. It did. It yeah. slowed a little right. bit during the debt ceiling showdown, which was very that was very clever. Fed space bal go. Okay. F E D space B A L go on the Bloomberg terminal. But what are you not going to hear asked at the press conference today? Nobody's going to ask him about the balance sheet. It's like the press is gagged. It's, uh, it's why incredible. is that incredible? Because Neil Grossman comes in here, he calls it uh, Q D quantitative drip. <laughs> well, again. Uh, but the first time they tried QT, they, they were trying to empty out a lake. Now, every central bank in the world jumped in after the pandemic. So now QT is working where they're trying to empty out an ocean. So it's, it's, a, it's a different dynamic, but that does not mean that it's not happening. And by the way, it's global. 
Right. And it wasn't. It wasn't. And a few we're getting a ago. ton of supply. This is what we were just talking about with Ira Jersey, right? At the same time, we're getting a, a one and a half trillion, I think he said, of yep. supply maybe through. And, and year I mean, end. you know, for the moment, you know, if you if you dig deep, pension funds, life insurance companies, they're delighted. They don't know what to do with themselves with these yields. <laughs> they're like, oh my gosh, I can do this weird thing called asset liability matching, which I haven't been able to do for years. I've been stuck in private equity paying God knows what fees. Um, for diversification that I, you know, all of a sudden I can't get. Why are we seeing CIOs of public pensions falling quickly, one after another, like dominoes? <laughs> all right, Just Danielle, saying. I'm glad you made it to the studio. Uh, it was worth every minute. Danielle DiMartino Booth, she's the CEO and Chief Strategist at QI Research, one of our favorite folks to talk to about these markets and about the Federal Reserve. She did spend some time at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, so she knows of what she speaks. Again, we're going to hear from uh, the Fed today. We'll get those minutes at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. Uh, Bloomberg Surveillance TV coverage starts at 1.30. That's going to be simulcast on radio, I believe. The Fed decides. The Fed decides. Well, full coverage. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. It's not working in New York City the way I thought it was, which is city-approved dispensaries and nice shops and all that. Every block has two or three, two or three of these, you know, kind of, I don't know, under-the-table kind of I mean, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Okay. I think that cannabis management in the, in New York State wanted to do the right thing and then just ended up making a mess of it. Yeah. Because there's only a few legal, uh, well, there's only a few licensed right. dispensaries around here, but you can't get any of the products that everybody wants. I know. So they All go right. to well, everywhere else. All right, Kyle Kazan joins us. He's the CEO of Glass House uh, Over the Counter. Uh, GHBFWF uh, is the ticker. Uh, GHBWF. Yes, GHBWF is the ticker. Thank you. Uh, he joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Kyle, you're in the city here today. You've seen it all. What did New York City? Get? Well, what does what, Glasshouse do? What does do? Glasshouse do? Let's let's go there. So so thank you for having me on. Uh, Glasshouse Brands is a vertically integrated company in California. We own the largest greenhouse facility or cultivation facility in the history of man, mankind. Oh. It's 5.5 million square feet, coupled with our other two greenhouses. So we have we have six million square feet of of cultivation. We have 10 stores throughout the state, and we have a manufacturing facility. So we're only in California and um, we're basically the largest seller of cannabis in the biggest state in the country. How is that business rolling out in the state of California? You know, it, it has been very, very difficult. Uh, the, the industry is littered with just carnage and lots of lost money and things like that. Um, we are, we are uh, cash flow positive, maybe the only company in the state of California is cash flow positive, and we pay our 280E, which without getting wonky, it just, we can't deduct a lot of our expenses because it's federally illegal. So it is the craziest industry I've ever been in, but I love being in it, and we grow cheaper and better than anyone else in the country. But you can't, your brands are not allowed to be sold in New York State. And, and I, know, I imagine a number of other states because of the way the regulation works. Is there any uh, potential for that to change? Yes. So the cause of that is the federal government. The federal government has absolutely done zero. It's, we're a Schedule One drug, which is the most dangerous. 
And right now, I checked, I checked the, the ticker just before I came in. The total number of overdose deaths in the history of human beings from cannabis is still at zero. So yep. it is absolutely ridiculous what's happening, but we're starting to see some federal um, relief potentially coming. The, you have a number of brands. Uh, one of your brands is the Plus Gummies. Yes. And someone I know very well who hadn't smoked weed in years was given a box of those and thought nothing of it until he just decided to take it one day. And the experience was, I think, different than he imagined. He ended up uh, reorganizing his filing cabinet, cleaning out, you know, the, <laughs> the, the dressing room. And um, it just was was something that was different than he may he may have expected. Do you hear that kind of story a lot? All the time. And yeah. the one that I would tell you, people that are of an older age, they go with the sleep gummies because they don't like Ambien, they don't like you know some of the other things that are available pharmaceutically, and they can just take a five milligram gummy and they sleep like a baby, there's no bad effects, it's a plant. And so that, and then the next question from somebody like my 80 year old aunt and uncle, that when they go on their RV, they always have to have their plus gummies, uh, is can I do something to maybe take the edge off, drink a little less wine? And we, and we absolutely have those in the gummies as well. I mean, I know a lot of people who quit drinking completely, uh, <laughs> thanks in part to Plus Gummies. I, I love that. Um, and yes, I think cannabis is much more benign than alcohol. All right, competing. What's it like to compete in the state of California? Who are your competitors? Oh my goodness, you've got to compete against Kana, you've got Camino, you've got Stizzy. I mean, you've got a, a lot of big name brands that you have to go up against. I was not expecting to hear a California expert. You are absolutely right. <laughs> I have uh, friends in California. Wild would, yeah. <laughs> Wild would be seriously upset. I, I don't know if you just mentioned Wild, but um, it, it, what I would tell you is the future of cannabis, if you're an investor and you say, hey, I want to look at investing in a multi-state operator, First, go to California to see how we run our stores. Again, we're vertically integrated, but in our stores, we sell 25, 30% of our own products. We have to carry all these other brands that you mentioned because the consumer is very discerning in California and they want a selection. And so the Trader Joe's model that you might see in a lot of the other states, we don't get that. We have to run it like, we just have to run it straight and get the best products and hopefully they're ours as well. And so, yes, ours, ours sell throughout a lot of other stores that are also vertically integrated. So right. it's it's a very interesting. Well, it's like beer. I mean, this is the problem I have with the New York City OC or New York State OCM. Um, Brooklyn Lager is a fine beverage. But if I want Sierra Nevada, I don't want it to be illegal for me to buy it somewhere. Right. Why is it illegal? Well, because in, in New York, they can only sell products that are uh, grown in state. So any of the California brands can't be sold here. Go on. But uh, I mean, your I, 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 you know, you're going to go to you're going to end up going to an unlicensed vendor is what's going to happen, obviously. And then there are problems because you could get something that's uh, counterfeit and you could get something that's more dangerous than a typical uh, marijuana product is in the first place. When you I just want to sit and listen because you're making the argument better than I could. All right. When you walk down the streets here in New York City and you see all these unlicensed places, What's the city doing? How did they screw this up? What's amazing to me is, and, and I would agree with the initial quote of, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. All they had to do is look at the, look at the city of Los Angeles, who did this some time ago. We have illicit market, an illicit market that's huge in California. And if you don't properly regulate the market, they will 
own it. And we have one store in the city of Los Angeles. It's our worst performing store because there's 10 illegal stores around us. So when I saw what New York was doing, I thought it was crazy. And what's interesting is, you know, you're going to end up, they're going to grow cannabis in the Hudson Valley. It's going to be far more expensive than what we grow in California. And so what's interesting is I think you're just, unless they decide they're going to take a harder line and regulate this market properly, you're going to see California products continually sold. Yeah, because also maybe not as good, right? Hudson versus Humboldt. It's a big delta. Do you expect the DEA to make a decision this year? I expect them to make a decision. I've been told it'll probably be before the end of the calendar year, and it will likely be a Schedule 3 and, and go with the recommendation from the Health and Human Services uh, Secretary. All right, Kyle, I wish we had a lot more time, a lot more to talk about. I also want to talk about the, the real estate biz in, in Southern California. So uh, we'll get in touch with you again. And of course, next time you're in New York, uh, let us know. Kyle Kazan, he's the CEO of Glass House, talking about the cannabis industry. More and more states are going there, but some more successfully than others. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, let's talk real estate here. Uh, Selma Hepp joins us. She's the chief economist at CoreLogic. Um, so, Selma, give us a sense here. We got Mortgage rates just continuing to climb higher here. How's that impacting the real estate market? Yeah, it's been really bad for the uh, housing market. Uh, it continues the housing market down, to, continues to drag home sales activity, particularly for existing uh, homes, because you know there's the inventory issue there uh, that continues with uh, elevated mortgage rates. So um, uh, existing market is just crushed with higher mortgage rates. Selma, we cannot but notice in your Zoom, there's nobody in your office there. I mean, is, is it, it is tough is to it get work from home day? <laughs> no, this is my background. Oh, it's your background. Oh, okay. If, by like the way, that. for listeners who aren't aware, you can go to YouTube.com and search Bloomberg Radio yep. and watch us streaming. You can see Selma there as well. Um, Selma, how... Uh, how bad is it in terms of, uh, you know, the drop in transactions, especially with um, previously owned homes? And when do you expect that to change? What's going to be the breaking point? Right. So home sales, existing home sales are trending some 23 percent uh, year to date uh, uh, compared to year before 2022. Um, and that decline is shrinking because home sales dropped off in latter part of last year. So because of the base effect, that is shrinking, but we are still expecting some 20% decline in existing home sales compared to 2022. Now that, you know, historically looking, that uh, lines up where, where we were in 2014. So um, it is pretty low um, and I don't see it improving anytime soon, unfortunately, because of high mortgage rates. I mean, I think really we'd have to see mortgage rates come down to closer to that 6% handle on a lower end, like six six 6.2, 
before we see any uh, significant pickup in home sales activity and inventory for that matter, because inventory is really a huge constraint in addition to uh, lack of affordability. Isn't there a, a little bit of a timing, or I don't know, it's, any point where mortgage rates are, whether it's 3%, whether it's 6% or 7.5%, if they stay there for a while, don't people kind of get used to it and that, if nothing else, people start just doing deals again? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely true. And and we do see people moving uh, for family reasons. Um, so we, you know, people are, uh, people that were gonna move that have to move anyways, you know, there's life events that happen that make people move. So. Um, you know, with because of that, we're not seeing a larger decline in home sales activity. So if people were just say, staying put, I think that that decline would be even larger. But but people do move uh, uh, every year because of family reasons, job reasons. Uh, uh, and these are now the major reasons that are driving those moves. You know, I look, I'm looking at the stocks of the uh, the home builders and they're all up. 50% kind of this year alone, up more than that on a trailing 12 month basis. So it's good to be in the home building business. Um, mm -hmm. How much longer are they, can they enjoy this kind of demand? Well, I mean, I think we have a lot of pent up demand. And when you think about uh, that, that housing shortage that we keep talking about for many years now, we are down, you know, anywhere between two and five million homes. And, you know, while the uh, number of home new starts has increased, um, well, not in the latest reading, but, you know, with the permits being up uh, and, and we do expect home sales to pick up again, um, you know, I, I think we still have years to go because, before we can, uh, 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 you know, make up for that, that loss of, or, or that inventory that wasn't built. So we do have a lot of pent up demand. And, you know, it's not just uh, millennials, it's, it's baby boomers uh, who are now retiring and moving to other areas. Uh, people are still moving because they can work some some areas, you know, you still can work from home and, and you're moving for that reason, too. So I think we still have a lot of pent up demand. I wonder um, in, in terms of the Fed activity or the Fed, uh, you know, rate rising cycle, when this comes to an end, do you think uh, and when we know it, do you think you know, 7% mortgages are going to look slightly less terrifying? Um, or are people going to wait for them to cut rates? Well, right. So the, the, the knowing part is the critical part, because the, I think that would introduce some certainty into the market. And we've talked about uh, mortgage spread being high uh, before, and it still remains high because of that uncertainty around uh, what the Fed is going to do and, and what inflation, you know, inflation seems to be an issue again now with, with rising gas prices and food prices. So so all of that uncertainty introduces uh, some some risk that investors are, are not happy with or not, 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 you know, they want to account for that. So until we do have that more of that certainty, that's where that when the spread is going to come down. And I think that's when people are going to come back in. So, you know, and then obviously Federal Reserve uh, cutting rates will help as well. Well, when, um, when so, I was a know, kid, I, Selma, I think, a lot of people yeah. used arms and uh, mm -hmm. post financial crisis, adjustable rate mortgages and post financial crisis. Nobody except for Paul Sweeney has done so. Is that going to change? Well, we've seen pickup in arms uh, over the last year, but honestly, even arms have gotten more expensive. So uh, the, the share of arm origination has gone down as a result. Uh, but people, I mean, people are trying in any way, any way that they can to save some money. So, Selma, if, if a buyer finds something, uh, what is the mortgage market like? Can I get a mortgage? Can I, can I, is it, uh, is, it is it competitive out there? What is the mortgage? Are banks pulling back? Are they much more cautious? 
Yeah, I mean, they, I think there are, uh, particularly in that jumbo market, you know, in, in the markets that is anyway uh, more uncertainty, we've had more price reductions, there's less inventory. I mean, the markets that are suffering, they suffer uh, too uh, uh, in terms of availability of, of lending. Um, but but overall, the, the, an interesting thing that I recently saw from Hamda data is just how much uh, originations went to higher income households. So higher income households don't have as hard of a time getting a loan as much as a lower income household. So, so you know, that's that's really the concern here with lack of affordability. And then on top of that, you can't even get a mortgage. So what's the what is your expectation of CoreLogic? You know, a year from now, where do you think mortgage rates will be? Oh, <laughs> my crystal ball is not working these days, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think I'm hoping to closer to six again. You know, our forecast for the end of this year is 6.7. I think by middle of next year, we could be down to that 6.2, 6.3. All right, Selma, thanks so much for joining us. Selma Hepps, Chief Economist at CoreLogic, talking about the real estate biz. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Boy, what perfect timing. UK delay ban on sale of new petrol diesel cars until 2035 pushing it back our next guest probably has it so it's the that. worst timing why would they announce this during climate week i don't know that's my point so i'm thinking what is going on there ian sim joins us he's the ceo of impacts asset management and the reason this is irrelevant ian how do what's your investment strategy at impacts what do you guys do so we're investing in the transition to a more sustainable economy which well, essentially is the industrial revolution around clean energy so your UK Prime Minister during Climate Week says we're going to slow it down a little bit? Well, the UK had become an outlier in the sense of banning or, or announcing a ban on internal combustion engine vehicles, yep. new sales by 2030. And just about everyone else has got that 2035. Okay. So the European Union had, had okay. committed to something five years later. So this is All just right. an alignment with what the rest All right. The other the thing Europe that blew me doing. away, just from chatting earlier, like environmental investing here has lost the momentum in the United States. And I know it's way different in Europe, particularly Northern Europe, but you, you got $50 billion in assets under management. You're making big bets here. Yeah, so we've been going for 25 years since I started the business wow. in 1998. Awesome. And we're running money for about 100 institutional investors around the world, including many in the US. So actually, this is not about environmental investing. This is the industrial revolution around renewable energy, around energy efficiency, around electric vehicles. These are producing better products for consumers, cheaper products. And that's, this is good for everybody. Talk to us about like what might be a couple of the big areas where you guys have invested in. Give us a sense of kind of what how that works for you. And, and I mean, to sort of build on the idea that this is a revolution, um, we were talking a little bit earlier with someone who's invested in a battery technology, and he told us this is like the shift from whale oil to petrocarbons. Like, it's that big of a deal. Yeah. I mean, so, solar power has come down in cost by 95% yep. over the last... 20 years, it's cheaper than- As has the price per kilowatt hour for yeah. batteries. Yeah. Precisely, yeah. So that means that, that you can get cheaper uh, transportation, cheaper um, electrons when the, you plug a device into the, to the grid. So what are we investing in? Well, we're investing in large scale wind projects. We're investing in buildings energy 
objects, if you just take the average office building, you can typically reduce the energy use by 30% just by putting in a better building management system, better software, better sensors. So these are global opportunities, massive markets. Well, and I think it's, uh, it's nice that you highlight the office um, uh, investment case because Paul and I, we talk about us a lot, right? <laughs> we like to talk about ourselves. But this isn't about as much consumer adoption as it is CapEx, at least that's what corporate CapEx, that's what Jeff Chamberlain was telling us. He's the CEO of Volta Energy Technologies, used to run Argonne National Laboratory. Um, and he said that's why he got into this business because you're gonna see large multinational conglomerates really shifting spend into this transition. Yeah, I mean, this essentially is a, a game around stranded assets or avoiding them. Because if, if you're an auto manufacturer and you've got a, a plant that's producing thousands of vehicles a year with internal combustion engines, then by 2035, you're not going to have a market in Europe. So you need to pivot that manufacturing process to an electric vehicle process. And that's not easy. So this is where the investment capital comes in, because what we're trying to do is find the companies that are going to be winners over the next five to 10 years. Um, and those are companies that have got strategies that are going to be successful in the 2030s. Which are the most exciting ones? I mean, I love cars, so I always <laughs> think of battery electric vehicles. But you could tell me, like, new HVAC systems are even more important. I would have no idea. <laughs> yeah, well, we're investing across the board. There isn't like a silver bullet here that's, that's going to be the, the, the one to, to go for. So, and it's not just all about energy, right? Look, look what's happened in the water sector this year. We've got a huge contention in the, in the UK around um, sewage overflows, pollution of, of rivers. I think there were problems with um, one of the big athletic events in Paris because people couldn't swim in the River Seine uh, for the triathlon. <laughs> this is a, a, a major investment opportunity as well. Look at garbage, the amount of uh, money that's just been put into landfill by, by throwing stuff away. Regulations are trying to tighten up on that. So there's new regulations in France now that are requiring uh, buildings developers, buildings, owners to guarantee the use of certain levels of recycled product and also guarantee the, the removal of waste when they're um, doing construction. Wow. Yeah. So what are some of the, um, where, where are the new ideas coming from for to manage this transition? Are there, are there certain parts of the world that are, you find the companies are kind of sprouting up? One of the reasons we opened an office in Hong Kong in 2008 was because we could see that a lot of the technology around this revolution was going to come out of the, the Asian region. So we've built a, a very smart investment team in Hong Kong. We've just added some capability in Tokyo as well. So that sort of axis from mm. Singapore up to Tokyo via Hong Kong, Greater China, uh, Korea, Japan, that's where a lot of this is coming from. But it's not just an Asian story. There's great technology coming out of the labs in the US as out of Europe as well. And your assets under management are big, I don't know if we said or not, but 50 billion, right, dollars. Right. Um, what's the trajectory like? Is it, is it growing and where is that money coming from? So it's been growing rapidly recently. It's been plateaued for the last 12 months or so because we're in quite a fragile market for equity investing in general. So what I've been talking about are the fabulous opportunities in this industrial revolution, but we can't get away from the fact that equity market sentiment is quite weak at the moment. So that's meant that our flows are, are fairly flat right now. So looking ahead 18 months, two years, we're expecting that to pick up again. Um, but we've got distribution now, sales to clients across the world, 100 sales and marketing people. So we're expecting that 
new money to come in from pension funds, sovereign wealth funds we're in dialogue with. We just won a mandate a year ago with the uh, Government Pension Fund of Japan. Uh, we manage money for CalSTRS out of California. Um, but also, the man and woman in the street are really starting to vote with their, with their checkbooks through their money managers in favor of these new industries. So there's a lot of private wealth money coming our way. I think well. it's interesting that um, growth is and assets has been flat, considering we got, over the last 12 months, the IRA in that period, right? You're starting to see governments put not just millions or billions, but hundreds of millions, approaching trillion, trillions of dollars behind this transition. Uh, isn't that like the whistle to get on board? Yeah, so the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, the Green Deal in Europe, and similar policies out of China are really propelling corporate investment. Um, that's great for earnings outlook over the next sort of next few years, but we can't get away from the fact that multiples in the equity market are, are depressed because sentiment is weak as inflation has come through and central banks have been raising rates. But as rates start to plateau and inflation's under control, we can definitely see sentiment improving for equities, and that should be fabulous for growth at a reasonable price transition to a more sustainable economy when the sentiment when <laughs> that sentiment right. improves right we have, we have a guest that comes on occasionally when, he, when he's in town he, his focus is not necessarily new technology his focus is just kind of capturing the energy that's lost even like fossil fuels you know he's got some crazy number you know the the amount of energy that's lost when you take a barrel of oil out of the ground and it gets into whatever it's Jonathan Maxwell right yeah. from sustainable development capital yeah. he also wrote the book the edge how competition for resources is pushing the world and its climate to the brink. Yep. And what so we can is do there, about it. how do you guys think about that little part? We're well, not little part, but that part of the whole move towards green industrial revolution. Well, that, that's capturing money. waste, I guess. Is right. It. I mean, yeah. that's just money that's sort of lying on the sidewalk to yep. be to be picked up. It's it's an absolute no-brainer to invest in energy efficiency. The payback periods for many of the things that we're investing in that space are two, three years. And the only reason that they're not at scale is because they're quite often very fragmented. So that's where our insights come in as analysts around the world is looking for these opportunities that that can scale quite quickly with the right capital support. Interesting. It's. I mean, I'm glad Climate Week happened because I've been learning a ton about <laughs> uh, an issue that, you know, the problem is, um, I think for a lot of Americans, they get kind of beaten over the head with this ESG thing and it gets kind of uh, muddied in with the woke thing. It's become politicized and in this country. It's become very politicized right. and that makes it harder to talk about from uh, from an investment from a completely logical point of view. You know? Yeah, we need to bury ESG. ESG is an unhelpful, muddy concept. We need to move on from that. Because I like the way you phrase it, because I could take that message down to Tallahassee, Florida, Austin, Texas, and pitch, I think, the pension funds. Well, that's, and I wouldn't be physically thrown out of the office like right. you would be if you said ESG. Right. But, and if you go in and you say, look, if you buy an electric vehicle, it's got 40% of the parts of an internal combustion engine vehicle. It's more reliable. It's going to be cheaper. It's going to be more fun to drive. Why wouldn't you want to buy one of those rather than the right. clunky old gas customers? <laughs> All right, Ian. Thanks so much for joining us. Ian Sim, he's the CEO of Impacts Asset Management, joining us live. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.